Every minute, around 250 babies are born. That's around four babies every second, all around the world. Today's episode is all about babies and their mothers and what giving birth is like in different parts of the world. I've never thought much about giving birth, mainly because I won't ever have to, and I'm quite grateful that I won't have to. It looks like it hurts. But in preparation for today's episode, I did some research into the history of birth. And here are some interesting facts that I found. When someone from royalty gave birth, it was considered a public event. The child of royalty has huge implications for the monarchy and the baby was considered to belong more to the people than to the queen herself. When Marie Antoinette gave birth in 1778, 200 people were there in attendance. Another fact, in the early 20th century, there were trials of a type of pain relief called twilight sleep. It was a drug that provided pain relief during childbirth, but it also erased the entire memory of the birth altogether. Or rather, it provided pain relief because after the birth you couldn't remember it at all. Twilight sleep was a combination of morphine and another drug I can't pronounce, and the combination of these two drugs caused patients to fall into a semi-conscious state and then experience amnesia. So the birth wasn't pain-free, they just couldn't remember it. And sometimes the morphine would cause women to have uh, psychotic episodes. They would thrash around, sometimes they had to be restrained to their beds by their wrists and ankles, or even put in straitjackets. The newborn babies were affected as well. The drugs would cross the placenta, enter the child's central nervous system, and the baby would be born drugged and sometimes unable to breathe properly. Twilight sleep stopped being used in the mid 20th century after stories spread of the extreme side effects of the drug. But it goes to show how far we'll go in the pursuit of a pain-free birth. Now we're so fortunate to have so many options for giving birth safely with minimized pain and with the support of brilliant midwives. At least that's the case in developed countries. Today our story takes us to the island country of Papua New Guinea, just north of Australia. Well, the way that I would describe it, Marcus, is that I was plucked from Perth and transported to another planet because um, it was so different to anything that I had seen or experienced in my life before. And I've done a lot of traveling in developing countries. Um, but I think the, um, the depth of suffering and the experience of helplessness and hopelessness that I saw in this group of people, um, I just couldn't believe that they were suffering in this day and age to the extent that they were. Um, and so I just felt that I was just transported to another world completely and utterly. You're listening to Sarah David. Sarah is a nurse and midwife from Australia who was invited to a village called Yamen in Papua New Guinea. After her experience there, she started Living Child, a non-for-profit organisation that works to train local village birth attendants in Papua New Guinea. Yeah, so the reason why I was invited is because the men were saying that so many mothers were dying and they didn't even talk about the babies that were dying, but so many mothers were dying just because they were pregnant. And it was changing the whole dynamic of um, families and communities. So many young mothers were dying. And um, so when I went, um, I arrived at that point where they'd had so many women die um, that it, 
they were they were traumatized. The people were actually traumatized, and you could see it on their faces, um, in their stories. Um, they were truly traumatized by how many mothers had died. And the sad thing is, is that when mothers die, it's not a neat, clean thing. They don't just you know drop dead. Um, there's a lot of blood. Um, because most of them were dying from losing blood. So they were really traumatised. It was like they had been on a battlefield. That's the experience. That's the sense that I got from them when they were describing to me the situation for them. And every single person knew someone, a woman, who had died in childbirth. I couldn't believe it. It was just mind-blowing and just so, so tragic, yeah. So what is it like for a woman to give birth in Papua New Guinea? So what the woman told um, me is that, um, first of all, they had no access to family planning. So they, they never got the opportunity to choose whether they wanted to have a baby or not. Um, so um, all pregnancies were, you know, unplanned, or the majority. Um, the second thing was that there was absolutely no health care, you know, antenatal care. So here in Australia, you know, you find out you're pregnant, you go and see your doctor, then you get referred to um, a hospital, a midwife clinic or an obstetrician. And so you start your journey of being checked, uh, having regular health checks. There was none of that. Um, the woman had no access to simple things like um, iron tablets. So um, anemia in pregnancy is a real problem in Australia, but it's even more over there. So they didn't even have access to having some iron tablets to try and improve their health during their pregnancy so that they're in good condition by the time they, you know, give birth. Um, no vaccinations. We take things like having tetanus injections for granted. Um, over there, the woman didn't get that and um, often their babies died from tetanus um, after birth. So um, no antenatal care. Then when a woman goes into labour, now this is what the people were telling us, is that there was a lot of fear because they knew that there was a very high chance they could die. And the mothers uh, said that they would actually go and say goodbye to their husband, their family, and a lot of them would just walk into the bush, into the jungle, and um, give birth alone. So one of the very sad things that happens in Papua New Guinea is um, that puts a lot of pressure on health workers and village birth attendants is the belief in sorcery. So if someone dies, then they will then ascribe it to the spirits and the evil spirits. So then what happens is that health workers and other people who might be coming to assist that, that woman, they become afraid and they think, well, if that woman dies, then I'm going to be blamed for causing that death because of an evil spirit. So um, a lot of the women were telling us that they just went into the jungle on their own. And then if the woman came back carrying her baby, all well and good. But um, if she didn't, then they would go out there and find the, the, a dead mother and a dead baby. I mean, that's just tragic. So not a lot of support for a woman in labour. The other thing was that um, 
the village birth attendants told us of a few things that if they did help the mother, usually that was a family member, there are a few things that they did which were probably not very helpful, like um, getting the mother to lie on the ground on her back for the whole duration of her labour and then they would press on her belly, on her pregnant belly, thinking that they were helping to push the baby out. But in fact, we know that if you do that, you stress the uterus out and um, it can actually go into one big massive contraction and can actually tear apart and the woman will bleed to death. So that was one of the things that was happening for them as well. And um, they also told us that, you know, by the time things were really bad, um, it was too late to do anything. So they would perhaps see that it was taking a long time for this baby to be born, but they would have difficulty getting help from the men to get a boat, to be able to get her in the boat and get her down to the health centre. But then the men said, yeah, but the last time we went down to the health centre, there was no one there and the woman died anyway. So we're not going to spend our money <laughs> putting this woman in a boat and taking her down. So, you know, those are really tragic stories. So I think the main thing is, is that there is a picture of loneliness, aloneness. So a lot of the women who were pregnant and giving birth it was a lonely journey. So no support, being on your own. If you survived, it was a miracle. But most of the time, you know, a lot of the time you didn't. Mm. So very, very sad, yeah. Where Sarah works in Papua New Guinea is called the Lower Sepik. It's the basin of a massive river plain with lots of tributaries shooting off from it and hundreds of villages dotted along the water. The Lower Sepik area is a beautiful, dense tropical jungle area with mango trees, banana trees, and all kinds of colorful flowers. As nice as this remote tropical paradise sounds, the remoteness and isolation comes with a cost. The only way to access these villages is by the river in the wet season, but in the dry season, the river is low and you have to walk. Access to health services is just a huge obstacle for um, for people. So, as I said, like the um, the rivers, so there's no roads. Um, people travel by boat, but um, the river is really fast flowing. And where uh, Yamen is, it's you know it's easy to just hop into one of those dugout canoes and flow down the river. But then traveling back up the river again, it takes days. Um, and if you have a motor for your boat, fuel is incredibly expensive. So it's out of reach for a lot of people. So um, the women were just not even um, getting in a boat and travelling to a health centre because of the costs and the, and that took so long. But the other problem um, at that time was that um, the government just was not um, providing the support and supervision for their health services. And unfortunately, when you don't have proper supervision, um, people get away with doing nothing. And that's what was happening. So there, were, there was a building for a health centre, but the doors were closed. There were health workers being paid, but they weren't 
providing a service. I mean, when I first heard all of those stories, I felt completely overwhelmed. I have to tell you, I just stood, I, I remember standing in this um, church building because that's where we had the, the meeting and there were these 80 to 100 women and they just told me these stories and I just stood there and I just thought, oh, what am I? I'm a white woman from Australia. How am I going to help here? And... Um, so to be perfectly honest, I felt completely overwhelmed. <laughs> no services, no nothing, nothing. And that first trip, I mean, Living Child wasn't even an idea. I mean, I just went to go and train some village birth attendants, you know, once. <laughs> but um, soon realised that I couldn't ignore the, the suffering of these people. So then I came back to Australia and I knew that I needed to start up a charity um, to support the work. And then we've just continued to travel back there according to where they have told us to go to. So they then told us to go to another village. So the next time we went to another village where there was a health centre which was closed but we worked with those people. So slowly but surely, we've been giving training to the health volunteers, the village birth attendants, um, supporting the community that it's really important to open up those health facilities. So a lot of talking and networking and encouraging the local people and um, trying to encourage the local people as well to problem solve for themselves. They know the solutions, but they were in a place of helplessness. So working with them to get them to come up with ideas of how they can improve access for the woman. Um, so that's what we've been doing. So training, support, networking. We um, have been giving out clean birth kits. So a clean birth kit is literally just a Ziploc sandwich bag and it's got a clean piece of plastic in for the woman to give birth on. Um, it's got some gauze to wipe the baby's eyes after birth, um, clean the mother down below after birth. It's got a pair of gloves and soap for washing hands for when you're for the birth attendant. Um, and it's got some clean string to tie off the umbilical cord and then a sterile scalpel blade to cut the umbilical cord. So very, very simple. And then um, they've, been, they've been reporting back to us that they've seen a massive reduction in infections. So we keep records of that. So we get the, so what we've started up with those um, birth attendants is to keep records of how many mothers they're helping to give birth, whether there were any, did they use a clean birth kit, were there any infections um, in the mother or the baby? And, um, and what that's also started is this whole reporting of births. What was happening out there is that births and deaths were not being recorded and reported. So even if a mother or a baby died, it wasn't even reported. Did you ever imagine getting into this kind of work? Well, you know, when I think about that, because I'm actually originally from South Africa, 
And um, when I was a little girl, I always remember that I I just, I loved African people. I had no clue about um, colour differences and I grew up at the peak, the height of the apartheid regime. But from a really young age, I had this really strong desire to of right and wrong. And it wasn't fair that these people were separated from us. So I think that that seed for um, working in humanitarian um, places or uh, really reaching out to the vulnerable, you know, that was planted in my home country of South Africa. And I know that throughout my, even in my nursing degree and working as a nurse, I was always drawn to look after those really vulnerable, marginalised people. So I, I really had a heart for looking after Indigenous people in our hospitals, the drunks, the homeless, um, the battered wives, you know. So I was always drawn to, to that. When I went, um, when I was 28, my husband and I, we sold up everything and we went backpacking around the world and I was um, trekking in Nepal. I was a newly qualified midwife and I was high up in the mountains in the Everest region and um, I just kept meeting uh, these women who were health workers and their role was to look after pregnant women and they were so hungry for more information of what they could do to help their mothers and babies survive. And I remember sitting there, um, didn't even have a piece of paper, but just drew pictures in the dirt, um, talking to this one health worker. And I looked up to the mountains, you know, and the mountains there are big and high. And I remember just thinking, I want to do this. I want to train health workers in developing countries but um, came back to Perth, started a family, but again was always drawn to pardon me, journal articles or um, talks that people gave about conditions in developing countries. So, um, yeah, I think it's always been there um, and then it's just grown and developed. With your experience in developing countries, have you noticed a need for any particular skills or people with a certain type of education or training? Look, there is a um, desperate shortage of um, midwives, nurses as well, but definitely midwives in developing countries. And what happens there is that um, in those countries, people who um, get enough education to then go and study nursing, then to go and study midwifery, they're highly qualified. And so they don't want to stay in their really remote um, villages or towns. So the majority of them then move to the big towns or they then immigrate to other countries because they're, they're well qualified. Um, and, you know, they, they just like you and I, they want a good education for their children as well. And where are they going to get those the good education for their children? Well, it's not in the villages, you know, so they want to be in the towns. So I see that there's a huge gap, like in Australia, we are very well qualified, nurses and midwives. We have, you know, some of the best nursing and midwifery education in the world. And um, I really see that there's an opportunity for us to be involved in helping 
to provide education and support to nurses and midwives, but also community health workers who are lower trained in those countries, but they pretty much do what we do in, you know, in in the Australian setting, but they do it in those really remote areas. So short term, um, you know, roles for professional nurses and midwives to go and help support the nursing and midwifery workforces in those countries of need. Um, and of course, I'm always seeing job advertisements for in particular midwives um, with big humanitarian organisations. So organisations like um, Samaritan's Purse, um, there's um, Doctors Without Borders, uh, a lot of those big organisations, they really need well-qualified midwives to run their big programs in refugee camps and um, disaster zones. Yeah, mm. so there's a huge gap there. Since your first visit in 2012, what differences have you noticed in the communities you've worked in? Anecdotally, so from what the community has reported back to us, um, there has been a profound difference. And also even when I look at my photos, okay? So when I look at a photo of the village with all the people um, in the village of Yamen from that first um, visit, there were so many kids. Like you always, you, you, the, there's photos and you just always see every grown woman is pregnant and then she's got a baby breastfeeding and then she's got a little toddler and then she'll be surrounded by a whole lot of other children and those children are holding babies as well. So that was in the early days. Now there's much fewer children because we've um, provided access to family planning methods. And um, one of when we held a community feedback session, so um, the village of Yamen is only one, there's, um, there's 48 villages in this whole Kerem River area. And when we do training in Yamen, representatives from all those different villages, they come for training. And so we, 2017, we had a community feedback session and we just asked them three questions. What, um, what are the good things happening in your village since living child training? What are the needs still in your village? And then what do you think the solutions are? And um, it was amazing. But they divided up into their own little groups uh, for where they live. And they reported back to us that um, since we'd provided access to a family planning contraceptive method, they uh, had noticed that their mothers were happier because they were not always pregnant. So, um, and their mothers had time to look after their families and they were happier in doing that, doing the garden, finding the food, preparing the food for their children because they were not always pregnant. And that was just amazing feedback. The other bit of feedback that they gave us is that none of them had had a maternal death since they'd had the training. And that was, and they said, because they were able to identify danger signs in pregnancy and get the mothers down to a health centre that was open in time. And the other thing that they'd noticed is that 
because they were using the clean birth kits now at the time of birth, they had noticed a significant reduction in infections in mothers and babies, whereas before they told us that a lot of mothers and babies died from infection. Mm. Um, infection in babies because they would use a piece of bamboo or a knife that was used to cut branches from trees or cutting fruit or cutting the grass, they would use that same knife to cut the umbilical cord. And that is a um, cause of tetanus in newborns uh, or major infection. And as soon as their umbilical cord gets infected, it can spread to the rest of their body very quickly and they die within a few days of birth. What are some of your favourite stories from your work in Papua New Guinea? I think um, so one of the early stories was um, on my second trip um, and we were asked to go to a different village and they actually had a health centre, but it was closed. It was locked and um, like literally the doors were hammered, you know, with nails shut and... um, we were just confronted by the suffering of these people. So the health workers were not there. They were not providing a service. There was this building, but it was all locked. And um, I remember just going to sleep in my little mosquito net and I was really hot and sweaty. And I was just thinking, what am I doing here? This is crazy. This is just right, Sarah, you're not coming back. This is this is the end of it. You're just going to go home and you're just going to forget about these people because it's just too overwhelming. And um, the next morning we um, woke up and I just thought, you know what, this is ridiculous. We, we're going to open those doors. So this was July 2013. And I said to my team, I said, um, come on, let's just, we're going to open this health service again. And so we got someone, they removed the padlock, pulled out the nails from the store, flung open the doors, and we just got everyone in there. And we started cleaning up because it was really dusty and dirty from years of nothing happening there. And um, we, I saw a, um, a helicopter fly over and I said to one of my team members, I said, you know, this because it's such a far way. Like we had taken 10 hours in a boat to get to this village. It was just so far away. It was so hot. Everything was horrible. <laughs> and I remember seeing this helicopter and I said, you know what, we next time we need a helicopter to just, you know, drop us down here so that we don't have to do that long river journey. And um, when... We, we, we really worked hard. So I'd seen the helicopter. We really worked hard. We'd opened the doors of this health centre, cleaned it up, provided a service. Um, I don't know, out of nowhere, we found antibiotics that were still, you know, could be used. And we just gave antibiotics to children, to men. I mean, they were really, really sick with dreadful infections and um, fevers So we worked hard and then we left and the long journey back to Wewak, the main town, 
And I was just thinking, you know, how you know, how am I going to connect with people? We're coming here and going out to these really remote areas. How am I going to meet people from WeWAC and make the right connections? Now I'm getting on an aeroplane, I'm going back to Perth. How am I going to do it from Perth? You know, this just seems ridiculous. And then I remembered the helicopter and I said to my team, I said, listen, can you just be on the lookout for any brochure or a business card for helicopter business or a helicopter pilot? Didn't find anything. Got on the aeroplane, just sat back in my chair and just went, oh. Now I'm a Christian and I was sort of let out the sigh to God and I just went, oh, well, God, if you want me to meet a helicopter pilot, then you're going to have to bring him across my path. And, um, and then when we were in Port Moresby getting ready to put our luggage on the plane, on the, um, you know, check it in, this man with this peak cap on, he just walked right up to me and he goes, hey, I saw you in WeeWAC. What, what are you girls doing? And I said, um, oh, well, we're um, midwives from Australia and we've been out to the village of Bunam to do some training. And he just looked at me and he said, I've been looking for midwives. And I said to him, and who are you? And he goes, I'm a helicopter pilot. And we then went, we sat down and we had a sandwich together while we were waiting for our next flight. And uh, his name was Steve. And um, he told me the story of he was flying helicopter. So it was him that flew over that day. Um, but um, often he would be called to then fly um, a woman uh, who was in desperate trouble. And recently he'd flown a woman and she had died and her twins had survived. And he just really felt on his heart that he needed to that there was a desperate need for midwives to be in the province to provide some training. And um, so began our connection. And Steve then connected me to another organisation in WeWAC. He connected me to some government people. Um, and he also, um, when he finished working in Papua New Guinea, he left some money for Living Child specifically to be established in PNG. And tragically, he was killed in a helicopter crash in uh, 2015. But I often reflect on that meeting and I, it encourages me because um, it's not just my vision to bring midwives to this province. There was another man and he also had that vision. So I'm not dreaming this up. Um, this is true. And, um, and he really helped us get established in PNG. And um, to then finish the story, to go back to that health centre in Bunam, I was there just in March. And, you know, those doors have never closed again for that health centre. It continues to provide a service. And just this March, we... Um, put up some solar lighting and the village birth attendants have told us that the women are now coming to that health centre to give birth. So it's not perfect, still really rudimentary, 
But um, we opened those doors and they've never been shut again. And I really believe that it'll continue and the service will continue to improve, you know, as time goes on. So, um, yeah, my helicopter pilot, Steve. There's also another one and um, it was one that just really encouraged me that it was okay that I'm based in Perth because there's a lot of criticism um, that's directed towards organisations that come and go. But certainly my experience in PNG has been that um, we go, we provide education and training and support and we release and then we go back and then, you know, we're engaging with those people again and we're actually seeing them um, be a lot more independent. They're not so dependent on living child. And um, one of the village birth attendants who'd been to training a few times, she then told me she was pregnant again. Now she was having a seventh baby unplanned and um, I said to her, you must go to the health centre to have your baby. Yes, yes, Sarah, I'll do that. When I was in PNG, she didn't come for training, but she did call me and she told me that um, she was very pregnant and she wasn't feeling well. I reminded her again, Vivian, you're having more, this is your seventh baby, you are at risk of bleeding to death. You must go to the health centre. Anyway, came back to Perth and um, I just, I, I felt, concerned about her and that she wasn't well and one of the difficulties for women is that they are beholden to their men the men make all the decisions and if the, if the man decides that he's not going to take a woman to the health center it just it doesn't happen um anyway late at night one night in perth i get a phone call and it's from her husband sarah sarah vivian's um started you know, in labour, but she's not well, she's weak and she's bleeding. And I just thought, oh, this is, you know, she really needs to get down to the main hospital, which was still a few days journey for her. And um, so I said to him, listen, Isaac, you need to get a boat and she must go to the hospital. It's a danger sign that she's bleeding. And um, then he said, yes, yes, Sarah, I'll do that. Now, this is at night and I couldn't, I, there is an organisation up there called Samaritan Aviation and they fly an emergency float plane, but they don't fly at night. So I knew that I couldn't call on them because it's dark. And um, a few hours later, I got another call from Isaac and he said, we're in the boat, we're heading down to the next town, um, Vivian's still contracting and now she's bleeding a lot. And I thought, this is really not good. And from my midwifery knowledge, I was thinking there's something wrong with the placenta because if it was this a normal healthy pregnancy, she should have given birth by now. Um, and I was thinking there's something wrong with the placenta. It must be blocking the passage of the baby to come out. And I, um, I said to her, listen, get down to Angoram and then call Samaritan Aviation and I will also send them a message so that they know that this is urgent. 
So, and then he put Vivian on the phone and, you know, her voice was really weak and um, I just thought, oh, she's going to die, you know. I was really, and I felt really frustrated because I felt if I was there I could help her. But um, I got off the phone, said a prayer and, um, and then I sent a message to the pilot of this plane and I said, listen, I know that I'm in Perth but I said I'm really worried about this woman. I, this is a major emergency. If at all possible, would you be able to go and pick, pick her up at first light? And he amazingly, he got the message early and he said, I'll go. And then, of course, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, what if he goes and it's not an emergency, you know, all these doubts that you have. But amazingly, he flew, landed the plane on the Seapick River, picked up Vivian, got her back to the um, main town of Weewak. Obstetrician did, had to do an emergency caesarean section and saved the life of Vivian and the baby and it had been major placenta previa, which is where the placenta completely covers the cervix. So there was no way that that baby could have been born. And, um, you know, Vivian and her baby are still alive today. And it was just a reminder that um, it's okay, just keep using your networks and keep praying (laughs) and... um, Uh, you know, lives are being saved. Yeah, yeah. So that was encouraging. If there's something that this episode and interview with Sarah has made me aware of is how amazingly privileged we are to live in a time like this where for most people giving birth is a low-risk event and a time of excitement and joy of a new life entering the world. That's not been the case for most of history with childbirth being such a risky and life-threatening event. But in many parts of the world, that is still the case, and that's something we shouldn't be ignorant of. If you have been inspired by the work of Living Child, you can find out more about Sarah David and Living Child through their website, livingchildinc.org.au. That's livingchildinc.org.au. Thank you for listening to Voices Unheard. My name is Marcus Wong, and if you have any questions about anything you've heard today, you can write to me at marcuswongmedia at gmail.com or my website, marcuswong.net. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone who you think would also enjoy it. This is also the fourth and final episode of Voices Unheard. Thank you very much for joining me on this little adventure around the world, exploring the work of small organizations doing their best. I hope that it inspired you to think differently and to think generously. This has been an enormously rewarding project for me, and I've learned so much from the wonderful people I've interviewed. Who knows, maybe in the future there'll be some more episodes and interviews with some inspiring people. But until then, thank you for listening.